Welcome to Down Ballot Count's first episode of 2021. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, January 4th, the second day of a wild week in politics that began with Congress gaveling back in Sunday and Nancy Pelosi being re-elected speaker. It continues today in Georgia, with Donald Trump and Joe Biden both rallying voters for Tuesday's Senate runoff elections. We'll discuss the latest on those twin races with Bloomberg government political reporter Emily Wilkins, who's on the ground in Atlanta. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg government's down-ballot counts. But up first, it's Jero's Gem. Drew's gem for this episode is 222. That's how many U.S. House seats the majority Democrats held as the House convened on Sunday, January the 3rd for the start of the new 117th Congress. There are 211 Republicans and two vacancies in the 435-seat House. This is the fewest number of seats a Democratic majority has had in the House since 1944, and the fewest by a Democratic majority at the start of a Congress since 1931. In the November 1930 election, Republicans won a majority of seats, but Democrats organized the House as the majority party after a string of deaths and special election victories before it actually convened in December 1931, some 13 months later. Congress typically didn't meet until 13 months after the election in those days when the Constitution provided for Congress to meet annually on the first Monday in December. The 20th Amendment in 1933 superseded that and set January the 3rd as the new meeting date of Congress and the start of new congressional terms. Even though House Democrats have a historically slender majority, Nancy Pelosi was re-elected Speaker on Sunday in a vote of 216 to 209 over Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. Just two Democrats voted for a candidate other than Pelosi, three other Democrats voted present instead of for a candidate, but five Democrats who opposed Pelosi in the 2019 speaker election voted for her this time. Just one Democrat, Alcee Hastings of Florida, missed Sunday's vote. But Democrats won't have 222 House seats for long. Representative Cedric Richmond of Louisiana, Deb Holland of New Mexico, and Marsha Fudge of Ohio have been picked to join the Biden administration and will soon resign their seats. Holland and Fudge as cabinet secretary nominees require Senate confirmation. While all three districts are strongly Democratic, and Democrats should hold all of them in special elections this spring, vacancies for weeks or months will deprive House Democratic leaders of a few votes they'd like to pass their bills. So this narrow Democratic majority will test the vote-whipping ability of Speaker Pelosi and her top lieutenants. Expect a lot of close party-line votes in the House this year. So 222, that's your Jero's Gem. All right, up next, we'll chat with our down-ballot counts Georgia correspondent. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Joining us now is Bloomberg Government politics reporter Emily Wilkins, who's in Atlanta writing stories and appearing on Bloomberg TV. So we, of course, had to have her back on the show. Emily, welcome back. Thanks so much, guys. Great to be back with you. All right. So the big news out of Georgia right now is President Trump's hour-long phone call with the Secretary of State over the weekend, urging him to, quote, recalculate the results. The Washington Post broke that story yesterday. This is blowing up here in D.C., but how is it playing on the ground there? 
it immediately started playing on the ground yesterday once the news broke. Uh, it happened just before uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris was holding an event with John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock in Savannah. Both Ossoff and Harris wound up mentioning this during their remarks. Uh, Ossoff called it a direct attack on our democracy. Harris called it a bald-faced abuse of power. We haven't heard anything from the two Republican candidates yet, Leffler and Purdue, but this is going to be a topic that's expected to come up today. You're seeing Biden come to the state, Trump come to the state, Pence come to the state. And so we're expecting to hear more about this as the day goes on and and into the election tomorrow. Yeah, you mentioned the incoming and outgoing administrations all descending upon Georgia at the same time. And it's happening two weeks before the inauguration. This is supposed to be the like peaceful transfer of power time. And now uh, we have this just unprecedented moment where both parties incoming, outgoing are all coming uh, against each other in uh, Georgia. It's just it's just a strange circumstance overall. <laughs> hey, there's so many weird things about this. I mean, it's weird for a state to have two Senate elections and it's weird for those elections to be like the deciding ones for who controls the Senate. And so, yeah, I mean, both parties are bringing out the big guns here. I mean, the one message that I've heard, you know, from Leffler, from Ossoff, from, from everyone has basically been to tell Georgians, not only do you need to turn out and vote, but you need to call all your friends. You need to call your family. You need to call your neighbors. Like they are really, really emphasizing turnout at this point, I think, because everyone has a sense of exactly how close this is going to be. Yeah. And uh, of course, uh, amid it all, we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? So like everything is weird in campaigning anyways. Um, You know, we're all still recording uh, or Greg and I are recording from home still um, nine months later. Um, You're obviously down in Atlanta. You were at um, Kamala Harris's drive-in rally last night. Um, What's the energy like at a drive-in campaign rally? There was a lot of energy there. I mean, they kind of brought out all the normal campaign stops. They had Neo there. They had a DJ there. They had, you know, local politicians, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta there. Um, So in some sense, it kind of had a bit of a normal atmosphere. But then the odd thing was that people kept getting out of their cars, you know, hang out with other people and get close to the candidates and all that sort of thing. And I, I lost count. They must have more than a dozen times gotten an event organizer on the PA system to be like, everyone needs to go back to your cars. We are taking COVID very seriously. Um, so there was sort of that constant, like, we need to be safe. You need to get back to your cars. The one thing, though, that's kind of interesting on this one is that um, just sort of talking in general about COVID protections, I mean, when we initially saw during the general that Democrats were kind of a little more hesitant to do door knocking. They wanted to show they were being tough on coronavirus. They were taking this seriously. And now I think now that everything's on the line, like that's completely gone. Like the canvassing is here. There was a John Ossoff event yesterday where we saw like 200 people show up to canvas. And it's not that they weren't taking precautions. They require everyone to have a mask. They were doing health screenings for everyone who was going to go canvas. Um, But I definitely think that at this point, they've kind of abandoned the whole we're not going to knock on doors strategy for a we need to just turn out everyone the best we can strategy. So ad spending by the campaigns, parties and outside groups in the Georgia runoffs is now at $492 million, according to the firm Ad Impact. So half a billion dollars. That's real Dr. Evil money there. Uh, Emily, you're speaking to us from Georgia, the crucible 
Uh, what is it like to turn on a television there? And what are the TV ad wars like? Oh, it's just ad after ad after ad after ad. I mean, it's it's there on YouTube. It's there on TV. Um, you know, I was here the first week of December and now driving around about a month later, I am shocked at the number of billboards there are and how they are just all across the state at this point. Um, I mean, you talk to people, they get, you know, they're getting dozens and dozens of flyers like each day in their mailbox. Their phones are blowing up with different calls from people, text messages, all of that good stuff. Um, and you do see sort of, you know, a, a different in tone between the the two, um, the Republicans and the Democrats. I mean, one of the things I've noticed is that Republicans are being pretty aggressive coming out against Democrats, painting, um, you know, them as a danger, as them bringing socialist, communist. Um, the Democrats seem to be taking less of a confrontational tone, not that they're not attacking Purdue and Leffler, because they are, um, but they're talking a little bit more, I think, about policy, um, about what they would like to do under the Biden administration. And how are these races different, in, if at all, in tone or message or style than in the run-up to the first round November elections? That's a really good question. I mean, I, I will be honest, I wasn't watching Georgia super closely during the general election just because, you know, our team was spread out a, a, among how many different states for that. Um, but I think to a certain extent, they've kind of continued in the vein that they have initially. But I think the one big argument for everyone now is control of the Senate is on the line. And you've seen everyone embrace that argument, including Republicans who sort of didn't embrace it initially because it would mean admitting that Biden had won the election. But, you know, they're just making it very, very clear at this point that if, if for Democrats, if they want Biden's agenda to be accomplished, for Republicans, if they sort of want to block the wave of Democrats coming, that this is a very key election and people need to turn out for it. And Georgia, as you've uh, noted uh, before, has voted more Republican than Democratic in most federal elections, although it's become more politically competitive in part because its suburbs are diversifying. Um, of course, Biden narrowly carried the state in uh, in the November 2020 election. Uh, Emily, tell us what the two uh, parties are doing to reach out to Latino and Asian American voters in Georgia. Absolutely. So Latino and both Asian American voters and black voters were all really critical. You saw turnout increase among all of those groups, um, partly because they're becoming politically activated and partly because we're seeing more individuals from those groups move to Georgia and, and become residents there. And so you're seeing both groups really focus on that, uh, particularly for Democrats. You've seen both the Latino outreach as well as the Asian American outreach. Um, Ossoff in particular has done a bunch of events focused on the Asian American community. Both he and Warnock have hired individuals on their teams to focus on the Asian American community. And Georgia Democrats also have an individual to focus on turning out the Latino vote and the Latino community. You've seen spending from both sides on uh, Spanish media ads, as well as ads on the major networks that are being run in Spanish. Democrats at this point are outspending Republicans in that regard, but Republicans ran no Spanish language ads that we could find during the general election. And now during the runoff uh, between Purdue and uh, Leffler, they've run four different ads in Spanish language. And I think that really speaks to the fact they feel they can make some inroads with these groups. And even if it's just a, a couple thousand voters, that can make a giant difference come Tuesday. Certainly, certainly. And I mean, do the campaigns and the and the political party strategists or activists expect that 
these two elections are going to move in partisan tandem. In other words, is there an expectation down there in Georgia that either the Democrats will win both or the Republicans will win both and there won't be a, a split verdict here? And are the, are, the, are the candidates pretty much running as, uh, are the two Democrats and the two Republicans basically running as in tandem or as teams? Oh, yeah. It's awkward to talk about there being four candidates because it really just feels like there's two. There's Ossoff Warnock and there's Purdue Leffler. And the two have been running basically together. You'll see signs with both of their names on it. It's kind of rare to see something that really only, you know, hypes, supports one of the candidates without supporting the other. Um and I think ticket splitting, it's going to be pretty rare for this. I mean, this is a runoff election. This is about base motivation at this point. Um, and I, I feel like to a certain extent, because of how politicized nationally our politics have become, I don't know what the voter looks like who you know votes for Warnock and Purdue or votes for Ossoff and, and Leffler. I mean, at, at this point, all candidates um, on either side are running so close with each other that we really are not expecting any sort of major split vote um, on election night. And that's partly because of the stakes that all the candidates uh, are making these races about, right? It's about the Senate majority. Um, and, you know, that that requires for Democrats winning both races. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it would be shocking, to, uh, as you said, to, to not see them go the same way. But, you know, there are some real world implications to this, you know, Senate majority, um, beginning with how easily Biden can get his cabinet confirmed. How have uh, Democrats and Republicans, uh, the candidates described those stakes on the trail, um, some of those real world implications, if they have it all. Sure. So one of the things that we heard yesterday uh, from Ossoff, Warnock and the Democrats in general, they talked a lot about stimulus. They are still on the getting the $2,000 individual checks through. I mean, obviously, that's something that Purdue and Leffler have supported, but that's something that we saw Mitch McConnell block, in a sense, in the Senate and not really get done. And so, for, um, you know, the Democrats have continued that call for those personal checks. They've talked about minimum wage. They've talked about uh, justice reforms, uh, police reforms. Um, and you sort of, you know, hear them talk a little bit about Biden's agenda. Republicans uh, sort of are appealing to their base, sort of they one thing that's come up a lot is just sort of conservative values. There hasn't been as many specific issues that Republicans have promoted. A lot of things that I've heard them discuss is more about this is how dangerous the Democrats are. If the Democrats get into control, you know, you're going to lose your health care. There are going to be riots in the streets. They're going to eliminate the police completely. And so Republicans Republicans seem to be running a little bit more. I, I mean, both of them are running a little bit more on the Democratic agenda. It's just in what light they paint that in. All right. And so the first round uh, in November, look, John Ossoff and David Perdue, it took us about two weeks uh, to figure out that this was going to go to a runoff. How long are we going to be waiting for results uh, Tuesday night? That is the million dollar question. Talking with people on the campaigns, we don't think we're going to have to wait two weeks or, or 10 days this time to get results, but we're probably not going to get them on January 5th. We're expecting at least a couple of days. And once again, we're expecting the shift, uh, The what we saw during the election with the initial in-person voting numbers coming in, putting Republicans well in the lead. And then as the absentee ballots get counted, uh, more of those to go for Democrats and Democrats to begin to sort of catch up and close that gap. And whether they'll fully close it and, and pull ahead, I think at this point is, is really anyone's guess. All right, well, we'll have to leave it there. You can follow Emily Wilkins on Twitter at EMR Wilkins. Emily, thanks so much and stay safe. Thank you, guys. 
This is Down Ballot Counts. Okay, before we close the show, we wanted to close the loop on our last trivia question of 2020. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. It's been a while since our last episode, so let's review the question we asked on our most recent episode back on November the 23rd, which fittingly is about the final election of the 2020 cycle, the Georgia U.S. Senate runoff elections on Tuesday we've discussed on today's episode. Democrats are trying to unseat both Republican Senators David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. And I asked, when was the last year Georgia had two Democratic U.S. Senators? And I provided the four choices of 1972, 1982, 1992, and 2002. Kyle, did you get the correct answer? I think it's 2002. That is correct. In that year, Democratic Senators Max Cleland and Zell Miller served together. Cleveland was defeated for re-election in 2002 by Republican Saxby Chambliss, whose seat David Perdue now holds. Zell Miller was appointed to the Senate in 2000, won a special election that year, and did not seek re-election in 2004 when he crossed party lines to endorse George W. Bush. So 2002, your correct answer. Kyle, good job at getting the last trivia question correct of 2020. I'll take that win. All right, that's it for us today. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstead and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you soon. This is Adam Ellington, and I'm here to announce a new season of Uncommon Law, a narrative podcast series from Bloomberg Law. Black Lives Matter! Black My co-hosts and I will speak with African-American attorneys and hear their perspectives on how big law is, or in some cases isn't, adapting to become more diverse and inclusive. It's not fair, but what can be better than being on the front lines of helping to make this country better for all of us? If not us, who? If not now, when? Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts.